turncoat. The word creates immediate images of traitors, renegades and defectors. Here is a person who places self-interest above the well-being or safety of comrades in arms, and so switches sides irrespective of the resulting harm it does to the cause. Betrayed comrades react with contempt and demand harsh sanctions, even a gruesome traitor's death. While the turncoat's new comrades doubt the durability of the side-changing, because as Cicero wrote, no wise man ever thought that a traitor should be trusted. Yet the results of research conducted by Andrew Hopper, professor in local and social history at the University of Oxford, reveals that side-changing, or turncoating during the British Civil Wars, was more common than has previously been recognised. He found that it occurred on both sides and across all levels of society, and that some individuals became infamous for changing sides multiple times. As Professor Hopper tells publisher Mike Gibbs, this unease about the reliance that military leaders could put on their forces was always in the minds of generals on both sides, despite the possibility of capital punishment of the turncoat. Andy, we're going to talk about turncoats during the British Civil Wars. What was or is a turncoat? A turncoat was an insulting nickname applied to someone who changed sides. It was a figure of speech. It didn't have anything to do with their uniform or anything like that. The term really was popularised during the civil wars and we see it being used in conversations across the country. It had first been used in the 1560s and had been applied to people who changed their religious beliefs, either from Catholic to Protestant or vice versa, and became used a lot more to describe the thousands of people who at some point during the British civil wars changed sides. So how were the turncoats viewed by their contemporaries? Well, if you changed sides successfully and inflicted damage on the cause for which you had fought, you could be vilified in the news books and pamphlets of the time if you were well known enough to be worth writing about. And of course, there was always the danger that the new side which you joined wouldn't quite trust you. You'd broken your trust with your first side and how could you be trusted with your second side so there was quite a vocabulary of abuse that was applied to turncoats by the sides which they had deserted who were some of the most notorious of these turncoats the most notorious ones tended to be military commanders who not only changed sides themselves but also brought over a number of soldiers that were serving under them over to their new side, and in some cases turned over entire castles or towns to the enemy. Uh, a well-known example was Sir Hugh Chumley, who was the governor of Scarborough Castle for Parliament at the outbreak of the Civil Wars until March 1643, when he reconsidered his allegiance and decided to change sides, partly because of the royalist dominance of the military theatre locally in the north of England. The Queen had landed at nearby Bridlington, 
And it looked very much like the Royalists were going to overrun the entire north of England. Facing those circumstances, he decided to turn Scarborough Castle over to the king. And about three quarters of his garrison soldiers went along with it and changed sides with him. He was vilified for this in the London news books. He was accused of having lost his gentility having lost his reason, having broken his oath to Parliament, and also of having been guilty of idolatry, of wanting to mindlessly serve the Queen. He appeared before the Queen, and it was said that he waited on her to kiss her hand to seal his change of allegiance. The London newsbooks nicknamed him Judas Chumley, thereafter to mark his breach of trust. So in April 1643, this was the verdict of the London serial newsbook, The Kingdom's Weekly Intelligencer. As soon as he had kissed the Queen's hand, she turned her backside upon him before he could rise, as if she had taken his perfidiousness in scorn. And the Cumberland men in that popish army do all vow, for that he hath been the death of some gentleman of that county, it should be put forth in the forefront of that forlorn hope upon any design, for they take him to be such an unfaithful wretch as is not fit to be trusted, either by king, queen, or parliament. The turncoat who was vilified perhaps the most in the London press was Sir Richard Grenville. He'd been fighting against the Irish rebels and returned to England at the end of 1643 and fell into parliamentarian hands. And he agreed to serve as the Lieutenant General of Horse to Sir William Waller. But in March 1644, he changed sides and fled to join the King at Oxford. And in doing so, he took a number of cavalry troopers with him, but more importantly, the pay chest for the Earl of Essex's army which of course left the parliamentarian cause aghast, annoyed, angered at their stupidity in having trusted him. And so they had gallows erected across London, proclaiming what would happen to him in written printed proclamations if he was recaptured as a signal of the contempt in which he was held. And one newsbook in particular the perfect occurrences of Parliament, rather wishfully reported that he had been wounded, perhaps mortally, by a wound he'd received serving in the West. Uh, This pamphlet was printed by a a London printer called Jane Coe. So they called him Skellum Grenville. Skellum was a Dutch word signifying particular contempt something akin to scum. By one that has come to London, it is reported that Grenville is in Exeter, wounded with a brace of bullets in his groin on the last Lord's Day. A just judgment of God. Firstly, that he who hath been a notable whoremaster lieth now languishing with these wounds in his groin, and one of the bullets is taken out, but not the other, which is supposed to be a slugger. 
And secondly, he hath been a notable profaner of the Lord's day, received this wound on the Lord's day and in the West Country, where he hath hanged and murdered so many men. And was turncoating similar on both sides? Army officers changed sides on both sides for a variety of reasons. One of which, of course, was what were the fortunes of war? We see that early on in the civil wars, most of the turncoats were parliamentarians changing sides to join the king because the king had the better of the first year of war and for a time it looked like the royalists would be victorious. So for the first year or so, there really aren't any turncoats from the royalists to the parliamentarians. It's all going in one direction. And then after the Scottish army invade England in support of Parliament in early 1644, we begin to see the first changes of sides where we have royalist politicians and royalist officers beginning to reconsider their position and beginning to wonder about whether it is indeed Parliament that was going to be victorious. And we start to see defections from the royalists towards the parliamentarians amongst MPs and amongst army officers, although not quite in the numbers, it must be said, initially at least, as there had been of parliamentarian defectors in 1642 and 3. So by the end of the First Civil War, when it was clear that Parliament were going to win, before that happened, was there a rush from the Royalist side to join the victors? Well, soldiers captured on the battlefield, such as Naseby, for example, were offered the chance to change sides and to join parliamentary forces. We think about 800 or so after Naseby decided to serve the parliamentary cause in Ireland, which was perhaps a more palatable choice for them because they wouldn't be fighting against the king's person in England. So we know that sizable numbers changed sides in those circumstances. Also, as the royalist cause began to implode, Royalist officers and commanders began to search for means of escape, search for means of jettisoning their allegiance and coming to terms with the victorious power. To do this, they had to enter into a process called compounding, where they would pay a fine in which to retain their estates and to be allowed to return home, promising never to fight against Parliament again. So quite a number of royalists were looking to do that, especially in the 12 months after the Battle of Naseby, when it became increasingly clear that Parliament were going to win. And when we look at the Second Civil War, when there was this whole series of uprisings all over the country against parliamentary forces, were turncoats prominent in that? Did they change sides again and reappear? Yes, the issue of breach of trust became a massive one for the parliamentarians during the Second Civil War in 1648. And the reason was many of their former comrades had changed sides and joined anti-parliamentarian uprisings across England and Wales. So this really hardened attitudes towards those turncoats from those who stayed loyal to Parliament and contributed to the Second Civil War being a much nastier version of the civil wars than the first. And there was a constant fear of backsliding amongst the parliamentarians 
and they were much more vindictive about dealing with recaptured turncoats than previously. They put a number of them on trial for breach of trust and for breaking their word to Parliament, and a number were either hanged or shot in the course of the aftermath of the Second Civil War. So how did turncoating lead directly or indirectly to the execution of the king? I think it was the concept of breach of trust. The king was held to have broken his trust with the English people by having levied war against them. In the same way as turncoats were deemed guilty of breach of trust by abandoning the side which they had sworn to serve. Both sides imposed a series of oaths of allegiance upon their supporters during the civil wars. And of course, falsifying or breaking an oath was considered as a a pretty weighty offence in the 17th century, an offence likely to incur God's wrath. Furthermore, the parliamentarians who changed sides to join the royalists in 1648, during the Second Civil War, were held to have overturned God's judgment in the First Civil War. God had smiled on Parliament, had smiled on the New Model Army, had decided in their favour in the First Civil War. So who were these side changers now to try to go against that and try to overturn God's judgment? You can see the harshness and the vilification which recaptured turncoats faced in 1648 if they fell into parliamentarian hands. And throughout history, oath breakers or individuals who are seen as traitors have been subject to capital punishment. Yes, absolutely. So the laws and ordinances of war on both sides gave a capital sentence, a capital offence for desertion. So that was just for leaving the army, let alone changing sides. It wasn't always applied because there was a lot of side changing and military commanders couldn't hang everyone. But also, of course, both armies were short of soldiers. And so there was a double standard at play here. It was quite sensible sometimes just to overlook that they'd change sides because you needed more recruits in your army. And enlisting captives was a good way of fulfilling those recruitment needs, at least temporarily. Here we come to the double standard that both sides encouraged people on the opposite side to change sides. Both sides encouraged changing sides if it benefited them and yet were the first to cry foul if it did not benefit them. So we can see there was this enormous double standard applied to side changing. And was capital punishment applied universally to both the rank and file and the leadership of the two armies? People who changed sides were often tried by martial law, by a council of war, and you may be able to make a very strong defence or a well-argued defence. So execution wasn't universally applied. The principal differences were the manner of one's death. So if you were a rank-and-file soldier who changed sides and then been recaptured, you would likely be hanged. Shot if you were lucky, but usually hanged. Officers, though, would be given a more dignified death. Um, They would be shot. MPs or 
noblemen would more likely have the even more dignified death of being beheaded. So a number of would-be side changers and side changers were beheaded. Famously, Sir John Hotham and his son, Lieutenant General John Hotham, both beheaded on Tower Hill in January 1645 for having tried and failed to turn Hull, Beverley and Lincoln over to the Royalists. Sir John Hotham, the governor of Hull, managed to procure the agreement of his own officers at Hull to a letter written to the speaker that was designed to prepare the way for both him and his son to change sides by putting it in very strong terms how poorly they felt they had been dealt with by Parliament and how they were left with no alternative than to do what they were about to try. So I think Hotham there was clearly paving the way for his intended defection towards the Royalists. This letter is occasioned by the most unjust and perfidious wrong offered to one of our society here, which, as we conceive, was ever put on any map. And we are further persuaded that no age or history can produce the like example. And truly, it gives us all just cause to look to our own conditions, who are by the king esteemed traitors. And if we shall be subject to be abused by such mischievous instruments as these are, who have been the cause of this gentleman's wrong, we certainly remain in a sad condition. And we think we shall be excused before God and man to do the best we can for our own preservation. But their side-changing didn't work. That's right, yes. They left it too long. Um, they procrastinated just that little bit too long. And they were both taken in a dawn raid at Hull, where the sailors and the townspeople, who quite rightly understood that something fishy was going on, arrested them in the early hours of the morning of the 29th of June, 1643. 18 months later, at a council of war that met at the Guildhall in London, Sir John Hotham and his son, John Hotham, were both found guilty of breach of trust and endeavouring to betray Hull, Beverley and Lincoln to the Royalists. And so they were both beheaded on Tower Hill. And rather vindictively, Parliament decided to behead the son first, because the Hothams had boasted of their unbroken lineage of father to son going back to the Norman Conquest. So Parliament executed the son on the day before the father to break that. Interestingly, both men tried to rat on each other in order to save themselves and Sir John Hotham did believe that a reprieve was on its way to him when he was actually on the scaffold. But um, sadly for him, that didn't happen, and both were beheaded. Andy, you conducted a great deal of research into turncoats and traitors and their motivations for changing sides. What about the rank and file? What were their motivations? Well, often the rank and file would change sides because it was the easiest thing to do. <laughs> if they'd been captured after a battle or captured in a town that had fallen to the enemy, rather than enduring a harsh imprisonment, which might threaten their life, rather than enduring a really poor diet and squalid conditions, it would be 
a lot more sensible if they had the opportunity to change sides to improve their survival prospects and at least then they would get food clothing and pay in the service of the army of the victors Um, this was often a lot easier than trying to return home if your home parish was a long way away and you were lucky enough to be allowed to return home after being captured, that could still be a daunting prospect. And it was often easier for day-to-day reasons to change sides. We should be careful, though, about reading into elite prejudice at the time, because many gentry and officers held that their soldiers would really change sides at the drop of a hat you know, that none of them had any investment in the cause in which they fought and that they'd change sides for better pay, better rations, better clothing, even for decent footwear. Commanders were very quick to blame the cowardliness of their soldiers if they lost a battle. They were very quick to take the credit, of course, if they won a battle. So when historians say that rank-and-file soldiers really had no political allegiance to the cause which they fought... I think we have to be careful that we don't read too much into this elite prejudice from the officers and gentry of the time. Some historians may have pandered to those prejudices a bit in the past. We have to remember that some rank-and-file soldiers showed conspicuous loyalty. Some refused to change sides. Some, indeed, arrested their officers that tried to change sides. Some showed conspicuous loyalty and gallantry in very difficult situations. So I don't think we can say that the rank and file were apolitical and uncommitted. Some of them maybe were, but not all of them. We can't apply that universally. Any general, any military leader going into battle, fundamentally when he is planning a strategy or planning specific tactics in a battle needs to be able to rely on his troops. To what extent do you think that turncoating, swapping sides, actually fundamentally affected the way the war was conducted on both sides? Well, it did affect grand strategy, the fear or anticipation of side changing, as commanders sometimes nursing anxieties and worries about the loyalty of their troops. And particularly, there was a great deal of fear and mistrust about the loyalty of garrison commanders. We can see this in the downfall of the Royalist cause at the end of the First Civil War. There was a great deal of worry that Royalist garrison commanders would surrender prematurely or make some kind of private deal with the enemy in order to save their own skin or in order to acquire favourable terms for themselves to withdraw from the war. And so when royalist towns like Shrewsbury, Hereford or Monmouth fell to the parliamentarians, there was often a great deal of suspicion amongst the royalist cause that treachery had played some role in that, that officers in the garrison had made private deals with the besieging forces to allow them to enter gates unopposed. And so as we see the royalist cause in decline in 1645-6, we see a number of royalist garrison commanders demanding court-martials to clear their name for having surrendered these places. And most famously of all, of course, 
This happened to Prince Rupert himself when he surrendered Bristol to Fairfax in September 1645. After his surrender of Bristol, Prince Rupert was known to have ridden some distance beyond the walls in private conversation with Fairfax. When news of this reached the king, it inflamed the king's anger. The king was already upset with Rupert for having surrendered Bristol too quickly. The king thought he'd surrendered prematurely, that he could have held out for longer. And when he heard that Rupert had had this private conversation with Fairfax, the king suspected foul play. Rupert's elder brother, Charles Louis, the prince elector, had already come to favourable terms with Parliament, and I think the king feared that Rupert was going to do the same thing. Rupert demanded a council of war to clear his name and vindicate his honour, and that council of war met at Newark in October 1645 in the governor's house. Prince Rupert was able to clear his name and defend his honour, but the king instructed him to leave the country and bid him farewell and said he did not wish to see him anymore. When we come to 1660 and the end of the Republic and the restoration of Charles II, what role did turncoats play in that period? Well, most famously, the soldier most responsible for the restoration of Charles II was General George Monk, who was commanding the Army of the Commonwealth in Scotland. And he'd begun the civil wars in royalist service before changing sides to support Parliament in 1648. He marched the army down from Scotland into London, ostensibly to protect and restore the rump Parliament. But very soon, he was a very good judge of the political wind, slowly, carefully, but surely, Monk decided that the best guarantor of stability would be to invite Charles II to return to England and rule again as monarch. It was George Monk's intervention, the intervention of a turncoat, you could say perhaps changing sides a second time, that enabled the restoration of Charles II. Looking in total at this period and the role of turncoats, as a historian who's researched this area extensively, how do you summarise the importance of turncoating changing sides in the course of the British Civil Wars? I would say that we need to recognise that side changing was much more prevalent than previously recognised, how it became a survival strategy for thousands of individuals as they navigated their way through confusing and fast-paced, rapidly changing political circumstances of the 1640s and 50s. I think we need to get away from the idea that it was a dubious practice amongst a handful of aberrant or abhorrent individuals to recognise how widespread it was and also how it shaped the course of the English Revolution and left us an important political legacy thereafter to the English-speaking peoples. And Andy, where can we learn more about turncoats and turncoating? 
I published a book called Turncoats and Renegados, Changing Sides During the English Civil Wars, which was published by Oxford University Press and is available in paperback on their website. Andy, thanks very much indeed for exploring what I think is probably one of the lesser-known areas of the history of the British Civil War. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. We hope you have enjoyed this programme. You can see a video of a talk entitled Turncoats and Renegados, given by Professor Hopper at the National Army Museum, on their website nam.ac.uk. The link is in the programme notes for this podcast. In addition, Professor Hopper's book, Turncoats and Renegados, Changing Sides During the English Civil Wars, is now available in paperback and is published by Oxford University Press. To hear more programmes on the causes, conflicts and consequences of the civil wars across the three kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland, go to our website, civilwarpetitions.ac.uk, where you can download previous podcasts and subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down, about all things civil war. Our programmes are also available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.